Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I'm going to be fangirling out because I've already told you all I um, was able to get an author on that I'm super excited about. I say that about a lot of the authors, but this one I'm really excited about. So we have Erica Bauermeister here. So Erica, say hello to the listeners. Hello, everybody. So um, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about how um, I found Erica. So I stalked her. <laughs> so seriously, big stalking event. I'm not one to typically stalk authors and, and be a pain um, because I know their time is valuable. But I started to um, follow Reese Witherspoon's book club and because I find that um, listening to the books online is kind of another way for me to hear some other authors. And Erica was the February um, book. Her book, um, The Scent Keeper, was featured on that. And I was listening to it, and I'm like, wow, some of this sounds really familiar, the, the um, kind of the backdrop, Erica. And so then I found Erica on Instagram because I'm kind of bold. And then I just asked her, are you by chance by the Pacific Northwest? And sure enough, Erica was. So then I'm like, you want to come on the podcast? <laughs> so here we are. So, so Erica, why don't we start out with you sharing with the listeners um, what state in the Pacific Northwest that you're in? Because I know, but they might not know this. So I'm in Washington state. Uh, we lived in Seattle for, oh, almost 30 years. And then in 2012, we moved out to Port Townsend, which is sort of the northeast tip of the Olympic Peninsula. Yes, one of the beautiful places. I was just telling Erica, guys, before we recorded, I spent some time up in that area. My dad had a boat that we used to go up to San Juan Islands um, a lot, and we would we'd go to Port Townsend quite a bit in the summer, too. Um, so know that area well. It's very beautiful. Um, Erica, share with us a little bit um, uh, about your history before, we're going to launch before we get into the whole writing. Have you always been author? Were you an author full-time? Did you have a job prior to being an author? Oh, gosh. I have done so many different things. Um, <laughs> I originally started, I was going to be an academic. I mean, I did the full PhD at the University of Washington. Oh, wow. Um, finished that and realized I didn't love academia the way yes, I thought. Yes, I get that. <laughs> um, I wrote a memoir about being a young mom. Could not mm -hmm. sell that thing. Um, and ended up, but there was one editor at Penguin who said, I love your writing. Do you want to do anything else? And one of the reasons why I didn't love academia was the lack of women authors that were represented in the classes. Yeah. This was back in the early 1990s. It's mm -hmm. still true today, but it was really true in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I pitched a book called 500 Great Books by Women. And so I ended up getting a contract. I was a co-author with two other, Holly Smith and Jesse Larson, and then a bunch of contributors. And we did that book. And then Holly and I did one called Let's Hear It for the Girls. Oh, and those were both cool. <laughs> oh, it was really, it was an amazing education. I mean, I think I learned more about writing by doing 500 great books by women than I ever learned in graduate school because mm -hmm. we had to read thousands and thousands of books and not all of them worked. Yeah. yeah. It was books that didn't work that taught me so much about writing because I would lie awake at night you know, I had two little kids. I didn't have time for a book not to work, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be so frustrated and I would lie awake at night figuring out how I would fix that book, you know? I love it. <laughs> and so I learned a tremendous amount. And 
all during this time, I'm still, you know, I'm trying to write memoirs. Uh, we moved to Italy. I wrote a memoir about living in Italy. We renovated a house in 2001. I wrote an early draft of that. Couldn't get any of them. None of them um, got published. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up um, doing real estate because that actually what I was finding was um, I wasn't making any money as a writer for hire. That was kind mm-hmm. of what I was doing in order to try to make a living, but you don't make much of that. Yeah. It's was, a lot of work too for a not a lot of return. <laughs> sometimes it, it is not helpful for your writing because you're having to write the kind of sentences, the kind of content that isn't what you would normally want to be writing. Yeah, and so exactly. in my case, because I have a real strong ear, um, I, it was teaching me things that maybe I didn't want to be learning. So um, I made this switch and I decided, okay, I've been renovating houses and helping people with houses for free. What if I made that my moneymaker and I wrote for free instead? And I did that for five, six years. I wrote on the side. I wrote a book I thought no one but me and my mother would ever read. Uh, that was the School of Essential Ingredients. And that's the one that sold. Um and I think part of it was because I wasn't writing it for anybody else. I was writing mm-hmm. it for me. I was writing it because I loved it. Yeah. Um, but it took me almost 20 years before I got a book contract for, you know, either fiction or nonfiction. Um, and so, you know, for, for your listeners out there who are aspiring writers and you're feeling like it's never going to happen, believe me, I understand because I have boxes of rejections, <laughs> lots of boxes. Um, well, it's and, funny because my listeners all know that you're talking to me because <laughs> they followed <laughs> my journey on this podcast. And oh my gosh, we have so much in common. It's it's comical. So, um, so that's me. I'm in my first book. Um, probably I would say my third or fourth draft. I'm working through a writer's group with it now and um, have this great big plans and visions for myself, but I, I can't launch into that yet. I'm still in a day job. I'm actually in academia as well. Um, I work full-time as an online faculty member, um, so, but I get the privilege of working from home. <laughs> so that's, nice. that's the big changes in the academic world. So Erica, what was your uh, doctorate in? Was it in fine, art, fine, fine arts and writing? It was, yeah, it was in literature. Mm-hmm, literature. And so tell, I got, I got a question about that book. The, was it titled the 500 best female authors? Is that what it was 500, titled? 500 great books by women. So, so you guys read far more than 500. How, what kind of criteria did you have? <laughs> yeah, we read thousands and yeah, thousands yeah. of books. Um, so the criteria was we wanted to get books from around the world and throughout time. The, the, um, the criterion word had to be uh, written or translated into English. It had to be in print at the time that we went to print. Um, and one of the three of us had to love it. You know, so and it was such a refreshing change from academia, which it felt like my whole time I was being trained to take things apart and to criticize mm-hmm. and instead to be able to write a book, you know, and it's 250 word annotations for each book. So basically you become almost an actor channeling what this book feels like. Right. Oh, I love it. But you're channeling the best of it rather than saying what didn't work, because these are books you loved. We got to say what we use our critical faculties to talk about what worked instead of what didn't work. And that was a sea change for me. And I loved it. Oh, that's so fantastic. My two favorite classes in college were um, 
British lit and women's literature. Because yeah. when you're in a literature class, that you really, if you're in the right literature class with the right instructor, that's what you do. You're you're analyzing that piece of work from so many different angles. And I just love, loved, loved it. I really loved women literature a lot. Um, so I can imagine that was a fun process. Now, were you guys, did, I, I'm so curious about that. <laughs> so um, was that an academic press or did you guys get that pressed through uh, another uh, publishing company? No, it was Viking Penguin. Was it really? Well, I'm going to be looking that one up. <laughs> to them, back, you know, back at a time when ah. they could take a risk like that, you know, and they would know it wasn't going to sell a tremendous amount of copies, but they wanted it to be out there. They believed in it. And man, did we appreciate them taking us on. That's so super fantastic. Well, listeners, there's another book at you. You got to add to your reading list. I'm going to go find it because <laughs> I'm just totally fascinated with female writers as well. And so that's, that's so super, super wonderful. Okay. So now we're fast forwarding just a little bit. Well, let me ask you this question. Did you always know that you were an author or a writer? Did Or did it dawn on you like somewhere when you were younger? Or was there a journey towards that process for you? You know, I always wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I never truly believed it would happen in a lot of ways. I mean, I guess some part of you has to because you're, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when I have students who say, should I be a writer? And I, I always say the classic, can you not? Exactly. <laughs> you can not go do something else. But if you can't not, then that's what you're supposed to do. And that's kind of what happened. I don't, I don't know that I believed it would happen, but I couldn't not. And so every time I got a rejection, it's like, well, okay, I'll just write a different book, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the amazing thing about all those rejections, even though they hurt at the time, they really do. I mean, this is your baby and someone mm-hmm. has said they don't want it. And that is so hard to hear. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was learning my craft and I always think of those books as my training books. And they often say it takes you three books before you get one that gets published. Sorry to say that, but it's true. No, it's the truth. Uh, yeah, I've heard it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's partly because those first books are teaching you the craft. Mm-hmm. And so I have never regretted the books that weren't published because by the time I had the emotional maturity to write the novel I wanted to write, my skills had come up to the level that I needed them to be at. Exactly. Um, and so it was a long apprenticeship, but it worked. Well, but that's what the craft is about that I'm discovering. You know, when you mentioned, you know, if you have um, aspiring authors listening to this, you know, it takes a long time. You're speaking that to me as well, because I do come from the generation of immediate results. You know, I want things to happen mm-hmm. immediately. And learning the craft of writing well has been something that I've had. I love the writing process, but mm-hmm. the process of the business of writing of getting to an agent or getting, you know, else out in the publication aspect of it. That's all super scary and can be so far out there for me (laughs) that, uh, you know, that's true for every author. I know even incredibly established authors, you know, when they're sending out a new book, this might be their fifth or sixth. We're always scared. We always think it's no good, but we're always certain it's going to be rejected. You know, I mean, I wish I could tell you that, 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 feeling of uncertainty changes, but I don't know that it ever does. But that's, that's what makes us authors, that, that makes us open and fragile and vulnerable yep. and makes us pay attention to the world. And that's our job. 
And I think that is also the part of it that my listeners that are readers, they've commented back to me about the vulnerability that we talk about on the show with the authors, because we do a lot of talk before authors even share their work with listeners about what the author goes through. And there's so much vulnerability and there's so much... Um, you have to put yourself out there. And when you get knocked down with the rejection, you just have to keep moving and keep putting yourself out there. And that's such a great lesson for anybody, regardless if you're a author or you're an actress or you're a poet or a pottery or, you know, a musician, it's such a thing to put yourself out there. So um, I think it's great that you have done that and you've done it so long and you, there's so many people that quit and they don't, their stories never get out into the world and we need their stories. So I'm glad you didn't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So let's talk, before we dive into the books, your most recent books, um, let's talk a little bit about your writing process because um, you've mentioned you went through a metamorphosis as you're working through those first two, three books um, and some that didn't get published. Let me ask it this way. Does a story pop into your head and are you one that follows along with the storyline and you just run with it or do you have to map it out? Are you a planner um, or are you a combination of both? Um, I, am a, I am an idea or an image or a character pops into my head mm-hmm. um, and it tends to work best when it pops into my head along with a natural structure. Mm-hmm. That, that character. So for example, School of Essential Ingredients, my first novel, I literally went to a cooking class. We killed crabs with our bare hands. Yes. I, I would say I was shocked into fiction. I mean, I did not <laughs> expect that to happen. Such an intimate activity. And I found myself thinking, you know, what would happen if, um, if these eight people stayed in a cooking class together? Mine was a one-off, right? Yeah. And so, um, what would happen? And boom, this idea for a novel popped into my head. I'd have eight students and their teacher, each one would have their own story, you know, but the reality was that I had never written a novel before. I didn't think I could. I had never come up with a character who I didn't already know. Oh, and, I love it. <laughs> you know, wasn't like one of my sisters in some yeah. old fashion, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was one of those things where, um, I, it just felt like this gift, this bolt from the blue. And and most of my books have begun that way. You know, Scent mm-hmm. Keeper, it was this image of a young girl in a cabin, all the walls are lined with drawers, and in every drawer there's a scent. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, who is this girl? Mm-hmm. And where did she come from? And who is she going to grow up to be? And I just wanted to be with her. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how so often what it is, is it's a character that I fall in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then do okay. they lead you as you start writing um, the, how the story goes? Are you often surprised where the story goes as you're writing it? Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a leading question because I figured so. <laughs> oh, no. And that's what makes it fun. You mm-hmm. know, I know people that write incredible outlines. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them do more genre fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest with Scentkeeper, that was the hardest part was I had never written a single character arc book before. Mm-hmm. This was my mm-hmm. fourth novel, and um, I'd always written what I would call interconnected short stories before, oh. and so it was it was an interesting change. I always try to give myself a uh, intellectual and and craft challenge with each book. Yeah, yeah. But that one was a lot to 
bite off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, listeners, we will dive into Scent Keeper, promise, because I, I have quite a few questions <laughs> about Scent Keeper because it's the one book that introduced me to Erica. And so, um, and I had the privilege of actually getting to, I listened to it on Audible first. Um, and I want to go back and read it, like physically read it. Um, Audible is kind of a new thing for me. I, I found a challenge to be able to read more than one book at a time. And I found that if I listen to an Audible book um, throughout the day here and there, and then I also read another book, a whole different book, then I can get through more, through more books. This is a novel idea to me. I'm sure other people have figured this out, but <laughs> for me, it was novel. No, I do the same thing. <laughs> I mean, it only took me like, you know, 10 years to figure this out, but that's, I figured that one out. Um, so, but before we get there, let me ask you this one question I ask all the authors that come on because I find this one of the more fascinating parts of the interview. As authors, we're often told we need to be um, reading. So currently, what is on Erica's reading list or what is on your nightstand that you read before you go to bed? Right now, um, it's a mix, a very eclectic mix. Um, it's um, So I've got a, a book that one of the one of my followers on Instagram was telling me about called Meet Me in Monaco, which is all about perfume and Grace Kelly, and it's a light read, and I'm having a great time. Um, and then there's the Overstory, which is not a light read and is gorgeous. The sentences are just oh my god, they're like chocolate. It's amazing mm. to read that book. Um, and then I'm reading a book called One Breath, which is about free divers. You know, the kind oh, of people yeah. that go down without mm-hmm. scuba tanks, which I'm using as research for a character in a book that I've got, the, the current book that I'm working on right now. So I usually, you know, I, I, I often do that. Oh, and then on Audible, I just finished Nothing to See Here. So, oh. you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very eclectic, but I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fun to be able to kind of move in and out of whatever mood I'm in. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's the book that I pick up. Yeah, I I am a historical fiction fan, so I almost all I try not to stick all with historical fiction. I like to read other fiction and other genres. Um, I just finished um, the Woman's Hour about the right for women's women's suffrage. Learned so much I did not know <laughs> about women's suffrage. Very good book. Um, while I was listening to your book. So since I've mentioned your book and you've mentioned the title, at least of the one that I was introduced to, let's jump into, um, share with us the titles and you can share with us just the latest two, but you can also share with us all the titles that you have published because I will have your information on show notes. Um, so my listeners know when they get done driving on the i5 cord and they pull into their parking spot and get to work, they can go in and find your website and maybe get a hold of one or two of your books, but, um, share with us your titles. Okay. So the first one, um, was called the school of essential ingredients. The second one was called Joy for Beginners. That's about a group of eight women who all challenge each other to do one thing in the next year that is new or different or scary. Oh, that's um, cool. In order to support a breast cancer survivor. Uh, And then the third book was called The Lost Art of Mixing. And that is actually a sequel to The School of Essential Ingredients. And the two I've got, the newest two that I'm actually out promoting right now, um, the first one is a novel called The Scent Keeper. And that's the one that Reese... Witherspoon's book club just picked Mm -hmm. and then coming out um well by the time this is published it'll already be out but it's March 24th 2020 is a memoir called House Lessons so I actually went back to one of those memoirs 
and with the perspective of almost 20 years, was able to write the book that I couldn't write back in 2001 when the events actually occurred. Oh, we're going to go back and visit that a little bit here. (laughs) Yes. Because memoirs are very fascinating to me um, because I feel like you almost have to do it that way. You have to write it out first and then walk away from it for a couple of years and then go back with some objectivity. I mean, at least that's how I feel like I would want to do a memoir. Because I completely agree. And it's it's really worth doing those early versions because I wrote down so many details. Yeah. You know, 15 years later, I'm thinking, oh, thank God I wrote that down because I, memories are faulty and there's, there's and, and, you know, you need that kind of specificity to bring the scene alive for other people, but you don't necessarily remember it yourself or you're just factually inaccurate, which is really bad. Exactly. Um, Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. So let me ask you this question and then we'll dive into the last, the last two you mentioned, the scent keeper. And um, I'm sorry, the title of the second one that you're, is the house lessons, house lessons. I knew that, but I, it, it's been a long it's, day. I, I, and, I have no problem saying it over and over. Oh, and over. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, you know, my husband and I, I'll, I'll jump in here on that part. My husband and I um, have a 1920s craftsman home in our area that we refurbished from literally ground up. And, um, before we moved into it and it's our, it's our love project together. We love doing it together. Um, and so it was one of those things that I never, he's in construction, but I never thought we would have so much fun working on a house together. Houses have their own personality. <laughs> they do. They do. Yep. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm kind of drawn to the title of that one. Cause I, boy, but we learned a lot of lessons together too. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yep. okay. So, are, are you traditionally published or all your uh, titles traditionally published or do you have a hybrid or a mix of where you self-published some of them? No, they're all traditionally different, um, different. Im- uh, let's see, six out of the seven are various imprints at Penguin Random House. And then Scent Keeper is with St. Martin's, which is Macmillan. Okay. So you're with the big ones. So did you get an agent to start with? How did that start for you? Give us some insight on how that happened. I did. Um, I had an agent for my nonfiction. When I was trying to sell the memoirs, I had one agent. Um, She did not do fiction. Mm -hmm. And so when I had School of Essential Ingredients, um, when I was getting ready with it, uh, I actually completely lucked out. And this is why I tell aspiring writers, just say yes to everything. (laughs) You know, I I had a friend who um, she ran a, um, what do they call it? It was like a book tour, but it was web, web-based, web right? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And so it was a blog tour thing. And a very well-connected author was coming into town. She had to take the author out to dinner. She said, will you come with me? You know, I'm an introvert. I'm scared. And I said, I'm an introvert. I'm scared. I don't do stuff like that. But in fact, for some reason, that time I opened my mouth and said, sure. And I don't know why I said that. I love it. Uh, but I went to dinner and my friend starts pitching my book to this woman. And she says, oh, I know exactly who you should send it to. Tell me when you're ready. And oh I said, my gosh. <laughs> and I said, you don't want to read it? And she goes, no, no, I, 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 hear, I hear you. I hear the title. Just let me know. And, and so actually the agent she had in mind didn't want it. But um, his wife had just had a baby. It took him a long time to read it. By the time he read it, two of his assistants had read it. They both loved it. And so he said, well, I don't want it, but do you mind if I pass it around my agency and see if there's someone else that does? 
And so I ended up with Amy Burkhauer at writer's house, which is like winning the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was amazing, just amazing. And so, and, and then everything just went so fast after that. It was mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's why, I mean, you just don't know. Yeah. You can get pulled out of a slush pile, but more often it's going to be someone you meet at a conference, you know, mm-hmm. a writer who's on a panel and you strike up a conversation yeah. with them. You know, it's, it's like any other business. It really helps to know someone. And um, that's the one thing I hear over and over again. I've had several really well um, authors that have done super well in the Northwest here. Um, New York Times bestselling authors. I actually had one that I was interviewing while she was in London doing her book tour. That was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get the same message and over and over again. A, you got to put yourself out there. We're almost all introverts and it's very scary to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And B, these relationships are what moves you forward in your success. It's not always, you know, sending out all those query letters or, you know, yeah. it's, it's about you meeting these people and having relationships. And community was a really hard thing for me to find. Not since the podcast. Now I'm almost to the place where I have to stop the community involvement because I can't get anything else done. <laughs> yep, yep. But, but it's so true. So I love that part of your story. That's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, speaking of community, I was very lucky because when Scentkeeper first came, I mean, sorry, when School of Essential Ingredients first came out, um, I met Jenny Shortridge, who was one of the founders of Seattle Seven Writers, and um, she and Gar Stein, and, and, and then a group of us. I was one of the original seven, but it just it was just a lucky accident that I ran into her at a conference, and then I got to meet all of these authors in Seattle. I mean, the Seattle seven ended up having over 92 members by the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, for those that don't know what that is, can you share just a little bit about what that is? I know what it is because I follow them, but, yeah. but so the Seattle seven, it actually, we actually shuttered last year, um, closed it down um, mm-hmm. because the writers had to actually get back to writing again, yep, yep. but it was, um, it was a philanthropic organization and a teaching and a literacy organization. It wasn't a, co-promotion kind of thing. We didn't do writing groups together. We very much wanted to use whatever power we had as writers to do good in the community. Mm-hmm. And it was an extraordinary experience. Um, I met such generous, professional, kind people. And because we really did vet everybody that came in, we didn't, yeah. we didn't want any prima donnas. We wanted people that were willing to work. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, there, you have a community of people who have agents and can talk about that. And mm-hmm. it's really important to build that community because who else can you talk to about this stuff? You know, no, exactly. And that, and that's a truth. And I think that's the hardest thing is finding people you can talk to. It feels like you're talking a different language when you're talking about the author business. <laughs> it's a whole different world. You know, those of us that just pick up books and read the books and enjoy that. And we're happy with that. Some people don't want to know what the business is behind it, but those of us that are writing and wanting to get into that business, it's a whole new world for me. At least it has been. So I'm so happy you had that. <laughs> I was very lucky. Yeah. So, um, Let's jump on because you answered all my questions that I usually ask without me even prompting. I love it. So, (laughs) Erica, let's talk about The Scent Keeper a little bit because that's the one that I was introduced to you from, which is funny that that's how I found you. Um, I was kind of stalking Reese's book club as well, but... (laughs) So, um, cause I'm a librarian and they put out this big thing about hiring librarians and what, 
five or 10 of my girlfriends emailed me and said, you got to apply for this, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so long story short. So then, um, so I am wondering about the Scent Keeper. How did that get picked up with Reese's uh, book club? That is one of the great mysteries of life. I really? Have no I have no idea. I mean, everyone, every publisher that has a woman author is going to send their book, that book, to Reese's book club. I mean, exactly. And yeah. my publisher did too. Um, but we had no in. I have no idea how they picked it. Um, I know that she reads the books. I know that she chooses them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but it was a book that had not been selling well. I mean, it was, not, it was a very quiet book. Hmm. Um, and then in December we get this call, I'm about to go into for wrist surgery. And I get this call that uh, Reese Witherspoon chose my book. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, the book's been out for, you know, six, eight months. Are you kidding me? Anyway, I mean, it could not, it was an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way that it has changed readership and it, you know, really makes you understand that, you know, the smallest megaphone you know, can make a huge difference in readers finding your book. And a big megaphone like that makes a gigantic difference. Yeah, it really does. So if you listeners don't know yet about Reese's Book Club, I'm going to plug it. And I'm not getting any affiliates, y'all. So don't think that I'm doing this for any other reason, except that what they do, what I love about it is they pick women authors and um, behind her company of Hello Sunshine, she wants to change the narrative for women in media. And I think it's just a brilliant and wonderful thing. So I, I really appreciate the books that they select. I personally think Erica, they picked your book because your book is what written very well. And so, um, <laughs> and I'm not saying that because you're on the podcast, but I'm saying that because it's really an entertaining book and, and we're going to talk a little bit about the inspiration around it. Um, but I, I was wondering how that happened. I didn't know if, you know, it was an in or what, because I feel like those books that she's picking are a little bit on the obscure. <laughs> They're not ones that I would see all the time. <laughs> no, no. I, and I really, I mean, she's known as a really voracious reader. Mm-hmm. And I am just so impressed with how she has used her celebrity to, yeah. you know, she's really changing the stories that are out there in movies. She's giving women authors clout with publishers, yeah. which yeah. is, you know, that's how we change things. You yeah. know, uh, we, were, we were, you know, we're kind of joking. It's, it, you know, you don't wait for the door to open, you make the door you know, yes. and this, mm-hmm. she's making doors and it's yeah. amazing to watch. And that's exactly what I feel like fame should be used for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more good. Yeah. Right? So, so very cool. Okay. So the scent keeper, let's talk about that, the inspiration around it. Um, and what we probably can do is after we do some discussion about it, why don't um, we break and let you share the reading from it too, because I found it super fascinating. So first, give the listeners a little synopsis of the storyline without giving too much away. <laughs> okay. Um, so the story is about um, a young girl who lives in isolation, basically on a very remote island. It's set in the sort of northern part of British Columbia, kind of off the northeast tip of Vancouver Island. Um, and it came from a question I had, um, which you know, I would walk my dog and I would walk, watch my dog's perception of the world be mm-hmm. so much different than mine. You know, mm-hmm. he was getting an all factory world that I did not have. And I thought, what would it be like for a child to grow up with that kind of you know, perceptiveness, all factory perceptiveness? Uh-huh. And what would our world look like to a child like that? 
how, you know, how strange would it be? And so, uh, you know, that's that question kind of bopped around in my mind for a while. And then, then that image of Emmeline came into my head. And so I had to follow her and, and it, to me, it feels like in some ways it's a contemporary fairy tale there. There's Mm -hmm. magical realism to it, Mm -hmm. but and I don't think I'm doing any spoiler alerts. Of course, she's going to have to leave the island at some point, or there's no book, mm-hmm. um, there's no character arc. Exactly. You know, yeah. And yeah. what she finds as she leaves and how she discovers who she is and who her parents were, and, and um, it becomes a quest. Yes. And it's an interesting quest because she has, a, a you know, eventually um, some huge, profound <laughs> moments. <laughs> <laughs> as she's as she's finding out who she is, which is beautifully done. Um, so so it's it's around the idea of sense. What was your research like? Did you, I know that you had posted on the Instagram some of the books that you read, but did you go and and work with somebody that was doing the jobs that her parents had done to get a feel for what that would be like? Um, I did talk to people who were in the industry, um, Mm -hmm. um, and I read a tremendous amount. I mean, I read about the science of the sense of smell and the culture and the the sociobiology. I mean, I just, I probably have, I don't know, 50, 75 books in my library. Um, History of perfume, making of perfume, you know, how perfume is used in branding product. Mm -hmm. That was Um, the most fascinating part. I'm not going to share too much because I thought, I want the listeners to hear it, but I thought that was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> me too. Me too. I probably could have written a whole book just on that, but yeah. uh, this whole idea of this thing that we pay very little attention to and all my books really are about the subliminal, mm-hmm. um, you know, the school of essential ingredients was about how food affects us. Scent keeper mm-hmm. is about how the sense of smell affects us without our ever noticing House Lessons is about how the architecture and the psychology of space of the buildings we inhabit, again, affect us without us uh-huh. paying attention. And uh-huh. book after book, all I'm really trying to do is get people to pay attention. It's almost like you're taking people, uh, the veil away from the reader's eyes for just a minute on a particular thing like this. And the Sick Keeper is about perfumes and scents. I really felt like I was like, oh, I never thought of things like this. I never even thought about this. The one thing that I love, and I'm doing this now, I have this one particular grocery store that I go to that I I don't like grocery shopping. So anybody that knows me knows I can't stand it. I feel like it's a waste of time. Um, my husband's fantastic. He loves it. He loves food. We love to cook, but I just don't want, like the act of shopping. There's this one store that I'm super calm in and I'm very happy in and I love, and I, I will drive. It's a good 30 minutes away from me. I'll go to that store. And after reading your book, I'm sniffing around, <laughs> looking. I'm not going to say why. You know why. I'm like, I wonder if there's anything in here that's causing me to be relaxed that I don't see. <laughs> I would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That whole marketing part was fantastic. So so why don't we jump into the book for the listeners? Because I want them to hear some of it. Because um, I also, I'm curious to hear your voice because I, I listened to it on Audible and they have obviously a different voice actor that was um, reading it. And I was curious to hear what your voice sounds like because I, I I get that voice stuck in my head when I'm in Audible <laughs> mm-hmm. and, yeah. and I, I want to know what your voice sounds like. So I'm going to sit back and listen and we're going to introduce the listeners to Scent Keeper. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to start at the very beginning with the, I almost always have a prologue in my books. I love prologues. Um, they're, a, to me, they're like the front porch of a house. It's the way to enter into a book in a, in a quieter fashion. 
We are the unwitting carriers of our parents' secrets, the ripples made by stones we never saw thrown. If I close my eyes and breathe, I can still smell the sparkling, brittle moment my father broke my trust, and with it, his heart. I can smell the honey of my mother's promises. Maybe you will smell them too, and more as well. The simmering heat of a boy too scared to let go of anger. The bright numbness of a girl who lost everything in an instant of heroism. The sense of rain and salt and just a hint of pipe smoke. Things that happened before you found your way to me. I can feel you, my little fish, swimming in the tidal motion of my blood, my breath. We humans are almost entirely made of water, except for the stones of our secrets. May mine become solid places to land your feet as you cross the wide river of your life. May they be stones to build a home, not take you under. This is my gift to you. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you everything. So then we switch to the first chapter, which is called, appropriately enough, The Beginning. Back before there was time, I lived with my father on an island, tucked away in an endless archipelago that reached up out of the cold salt water, hungry for air. Growing up in the midst of the rain and moss and ancient thick-barked trees, it was easy to forget that the vast majority of our island was underwater, descending down two, three, five hundred bone-chilling feet. Forever, really, for you could never hold your breath long enough to get to the bottom. Those islands were a place to run away, although I didn't understand that at the time. I had nothing to run from and every reason to stay. My father was everything. I've heard people say that someone is their whole world, their eyes filled with stars. But my father was my world. In a way so literal, it can still grab my thoughts, pick them up and toss them around like driftwood in a storm. Our cabin was set in a clearing at the center of the island. We were not the first to live there. Those islands have a long history of runaways. Almost a century ago, there were French fur trappers with accents that lilted and danced. Loggers with mountainous shoulders and fishermen who chased silver-backed salmon. Later came the draft dodgers, hiding from war, hippies dodging rules. The islands took them all in. The storms and the long, dark winters spat most out again. The beauty there was raw. It could kill as easily as it could astonish. Our cabin had been built by the truest of runaways. He set up in a place where no one could find him and built his home from trees he felled himself. He spent 40 years on the island, clearing space for a garden and planting an orchard. One autumn, however, he simply disappeared. Drowned, it was said. After that, the cabin was empty for years until we arrived and found the apple trees, opened the door, raised the population of the island to two. I think I'll let you leave it with that. Wonderful. I love it. I love it. I have a lot of questions, but Erica, as you're reading, the first thing I thought is that <clears throat> your voice actor that they used for the Audible was very close to your voice. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> I was very glad. <laughs> yeah, I got to, I, I had a hand in choosing her. Oh, good. I'm so glad because, you know, it makes a big difference, um, I feel like. So, so you guys have sound almost very identical voices. So, so I love that. Well, I have one question I'm dying to ask. So um, Eric and I were talking a little bit before recording about the end of the scent keeper. And so um, we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So Erica, I follow this Facebook group that is fans of Reese's um, book club and a lot of the individuals on that Facebook group. And I kind of felt this too, that the ending was really abrupt. Can you kind of a 
address that for us? Sure. Yeah. So this is the, the thing people ask, are you ever done with a book? And the question is no. I mean, the answer is no. Um, in that case, um, so the hardback version of the book um, does not have an epilogue, which is now in the paperback and on your audio version and should also be on a, any ebook that you would get. Um, for the people who read the hardback version, it's also on my website um, so that you can catch on too. Um, but I really, you know, after the book was published, I, I just had this nagging feeling that there needed to be a bit more closure. I wanted the prologue to be bookended with an epilogue. I always think that it's nice to have that kind of symmetrical balance. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted the ending to have that same poetic feeling of the beginning that I read to you um, that starts with, we are the unwitting carriers of our parents' secrets. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to end with parents and, mm -hmm. and what Emmeline learned through sense and what she learned about parents. And so, um, and thus the epilogue, but it's one of the great little mysteries of life that depending on which version of the book you pick up, you may or may not get it. So, um, oh, so I'm that, sure it's very fascinating to you because when you meet readers, you know exactly prob what book version they read when they come. Absolutely. Up yep, I absolutely know which one they read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad I asked that question because I was, I liked the ending. I love abruptness in my book. I have a couple of abrupt places that my readers are like, whoa, that shocked me. But that was the number one common question that was on that group. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to have Erica on my podcast. I will ask. <laughs> well, and I appreciate the chance to get the word out there because wow. it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing trying to disseminate that kind of information. So yeah. Thanks. So for us to recap, if you listen to it on Audible or you read it in paperback, we can go to your website and read the epilogue. Well, no, you'll already, if you, if you paperback or, or audio, you're already getting the epilogue. Okay. Gotcha. It's only the hardback people that, and, and bless you for buying hardback by the way, but um, in this case, you don't get the epilogue and, but you can go and read it on my gotcha. website. Okay. Fantastic. So listeners, that's where you go for the end. And if you still have questions, you can let her know. <laughs> All righty. Okay. So let's dive in to, well, let me ask you this. Besides the book that the story, Emmeline's story came to you, was there something else that was an inspiration for this story? And besides your dog, you know, you took him for walks and you noticed how he observed the world through scent. Was there anything else that helped to drive the inspiration of the story? Um, well, you know, it was kind of interesting when I was in my early 40s. So we, we're going to blame premenopausal hormones here. Um, <laughs> Hmm, I don't know what those are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of a sudden my sense of smell went off the charts. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we were kind of joking that you could use me to, you know, track kidnapped children. I mean, I was just, <laughs> you know, I could be in the back of the house and if our, my teenage daughter walked in from, you know, the front door, I could smell from the kitchen if she'd even been near anyone who had been smoking, you know, I mean, it just mm -hmm. it drove my kids crazy, but, um, but the world was really alive. Mm -hmm. um, in that way. And, you know, I, I think I thought it would stay like that forever, which unfortunately it is not. Um, but it was, the world was just different. And I think that was part of it was it was the closest I've ever gotten to being a dog. <laughs> you know? um, and I thought, huh, what would the world be like, you know, if you could always have this? Um, and then I read this story in an Oliver Sacks book, um, it was about a patient of his who had dreamed that he was a dog. And in the dream, he had that sense of smell. And when he woke up, he still had it for like three weeks. 
And the world was just technicolor for him. Oh, that's and fantastic. All of his emotions were incredibly heightened. And then it went away and he, it just left him bereft. And mm. um, I thought, man, that's just fascinating. So I just started doing all this research into the sense of smell. And, and it is amazing the impact that it has on us without us knowing. It, it, it truly is. And that's one thing I also think I like about your book so much is that I can feel that you've done the re- some heavy duty research in it. I'm a little bit of a research snob with books because being a librarian, I can't help myself. And if I start a book and I feel like there's just kind of like a haphazard research into it, I kind of can feel it. And I'm like, oh, this isn't holding my interest as much as somebody that I can feel has really done a lot of digging to bring out pieces. And this book, I felt that way. So bravo on that because research is hard, people. <laughs> you know, it's also every book that I write, I that's one of the things that gets me excited is I get to learn about that thing, like free diving right now. I yeah, get to learn yeah. all about free diving, which is, uh, that's just a joy for me. I, I love finding out new things. I love it too. I am a research addict. That's probably why I became a librarian years ago, but I love the digging and uncovering stories around stories and information around it and how that plays into stories. I could spend my whole life on researching um, the writing part is always natural after that, but I can certainly spend all the time in the world in the researching part. I have to limit my research time <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm grab a hole. Oh, pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Erica, let's talk about the second book. So by the time you listeners hear about this, now you're already all, if you haven't already read The Scent Keeper, which I'm pretty sure many, many uh, my listeners have. If you haven't, then I'm sure you're going to grab it. But now we got another one to talk about. So share with us about the book that is, um, it will be out by the time this podcast is out. So tell us kind of the premise of that story. Well, so it's called House Lessons Renovating a Life. And the idea is, um, I wanted to write about um, the renovation of a house that we bought out here in Port Townsend. It was a 1909 American four square house, which is a style of craftsman. And um, it was filled stem to stern with trash. Mm. Um, It had a rotten foundation, a rotten roof. The plumbing was literally electrified. Um, It was, it was a thing to take on, (laughs) Um, but we fell in love with it. And um, what's interesting is that the, the book takes place over almost 20 years. Um, because there's the initial renovation and then how the house has kind of impacted my life at various points. It's, it's, it keeps being the thing that I need. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, so to be able to both chart a personal journey as well as the journey of the house. But then what I realized is that what I really wanted to do was again, I wanted to do the research. I wanted to go subliminal. Mm -hmm. I wanted to look at how is it that the, the spaces we inhabit change us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have a kitchen with a little nook that you could have coffee in, you know, that invites that busy couple to slow down yeah. mm-hmm. and have a moment. Um, you know, if you have an apartment building that's got a community space, it's going to create community. You know, it means those kinds of things. Yeah. And so I, I really, I wanted to help people pay attention to that. So that when they are either looking for a house or renovating or remodeling a house or even just living in the one they already own and they're thinking, why don't I want to be in this room, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, or why am I happy in this room? You know, mm-hmm. what, what about it? Um, because once we see those things, we can recreate them and we can make them better if we want. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, how awesome. I'm so excited. I'm gonna have to read this one too. Because like I said, my husband and I went through this journey with our 1924 home. And now we're, and I'm going to be honest, people that know me know this. When my husband bought this home without me being all for it, we already had another home we were living in and raising our kids. He fell in love with it and it was trashed. And he drugged me out to look at it. And I said, what are you thinking? <laughs> we already have a home. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and he had the vision for it. I didn't. And for almost two years, it was a source of irritation between the two. I called the house his mistress um, mm-hmm. because a lot of money and time and energy was going into it. He really loved it. Then we ended up having to move away from it um, because we couldn't afford two mortgages at the time. And we couldn't rent out our other home. We could rent out this one. So we rented it out for almost 10 years. We rented it out. And then when I decided I wanted to go back to that home, our kids were grown up. It was the perfect home for um, empty nesters getting started in a whole new life. And I'm like, let's go back to the house. Let's redo it the way we want to do it now. And he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we, we started along the journey of enjoying it and loving it. And I, you, I tell everybody now, I'm going to die in this house. You're going to have to bury me in the backyard. And people are like, are you kidding? You hated this house when you first got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yep. there's so much power in space. And, and, I, and I love that. Now we're working on the idea of um, building my dream studio <laughs> office. So that's the new phase for us that we're going to build off of it. So, okay. so I'm very much looking forward to your, to your book coming out. What's one big lesson that you can share with us about writing this book um, without revealing too much about the book? And then we'll have you do some reading. What's one lesson you can share with us? I think the main thing um, in terms of a, a, do you want a writing lesson or a personal lesson? Either one. We like all lessons okay. on this podcast. You know, from, a, from a writing standpoint, I think what was interesting was the first three times I wrote this book, <laughs> I wrote it as a more straight chronological memoir. Ah. And um, I, it was never satisfying to me and it never sold. Um, huh. And it was when I changed it and said, you know what I want to do? Um, I want to make this essays. I want to make each chapter an essay. I want to, I wanted to have a deeper meaning than just what happened. And so if, if there's a chapter on maintenance, I want it to also be about marriage. And oh. if there's a chapter about hearth, I want it to also be about family. And, um, you know, each thing, you know, if you're talking about the difference between renovation, remodel and restoration, there's so many different ways that becomes an analogy for life. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to dive deeper into each of the kind of the geekier concepts of architecture and building. And so there's, you know, there's some kind of how-to and practical life experience things in here. Um, but I also wanted to do it as a deep dive into what's it like to renovate your marriage and also a deep dive into what's it like to, to have an affair with your house, have a relationship mm-hmm. with your house. Because there was many times when I felt like, um, you know, this, this house, what I was having an affair with this house because mm-hmm. I, I loved it so deep. So you are, you are understand my husband's concept where I was like, yeah, um, I was, I was listening to your description. I was just grinning from ear to ear because <laughs> yes, that was it. You know, oh, I love it. Well, I, I'm personally glad that him and I have embraced her together and we love her to death and we've had some amazing, and since we've moved to this house, my creativity has skyrocketed. So mm-hmm. 
um, I, I feel like it's a twofold for me. It was embracing the community that we were in because for years I was looking for a community outside of the, the geological community I'm in. I, I felt like I hated the community I, I was in, that I couldn't grow where I was at, but I wasn't looking. I was looking out. Like if I move to LA or I move to Seattle or I move, I'll find what I'm looking for. And somewhere in the universe, it dawned on me one night that you have to create the community you need where you're at. You don't get the privilege to run away and look for something. You'll never find it. And then I started to embrace that around the same time we moved back to this home and the creativity just skyrocketed for me. I started the podcast and then life just opened up from there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Many life lessons. So, okay, so let me shut up and I'll go quiet, Erica. And why don't you read a little bit from that book too? Okay. All right. And again, I'm going to read you the prologue and then the beginning. So here's the prologue. The house stood at the top of a hill, ensnarled in vegetation, looking out over the Victorian roofs of port towns and then beyond to water and islands and clouds. It seemed to lead toward, lean toward the view as if enchanted, although we later learned it had far more to do with neglect than magic. The once elegant slopes of its hipped roof rolled and curled, green with moss. The tall straight walls of its four square design were camouflaged in salmon pink asbestos shingles, the windows covered in grimy curtains or cardboard. Three discarded furnaces, four neon yellow oil drums, an ancient camper shell, and a pair of rusted wheelbarrows lay scattered at odd angles across the overgrown grass as if caught in a game of large appliance freeze tag. The yard was Darwinian in its landscaping, an agglomeration of plants and trees stuck in the ground and left to survive. Below the house, I could just see the tips of a possible orchard peeking up through a roiling sea of ivy. In front, two weather-stunted palm trees flanked the walkway like a pair of tropical lawn jockeys gone lost, while a feral camellia bush had covered the porch and was heading for the second story. Someone had hacked away a rough opening for the front stairs, down which an assortment of rusted rakes and car mufflers and bags of fertilizer sprawled in lazy abandon. In their midst, seemingly oblivious to its setting, sat a rotting fruit basket, gift cards still attached. That one my husband Ben said as he pointed to the house. It's not for sale, I noted. I know, but it should be, don't you think? Our son and daughter, 10 and 13, stared out the car windows, slack-jawed. You're kidding, right? The kids asked. But I think they already knew the question was rhetorical. All right. Chapter one is called Falling in Love. When I was young, my mother used to take all five of her kids on an annual quest for the family Christmas tree. We would travel around Los Angeles in our wood-paneled station wagon from one lot of pre-cupped evergreens to another, searching for the perfect tree. As the trip dragged on, there were times I questioned my mother's sanity. And yet when my mother found her tree, it created a satisfaction within her that I could see, even if I didn't always understand. Maybe a particular height reminded her of being a child herself. Perhaps a certain shade of green reached into her soul. I never really knew. And perhaps knowing was never the point. When I would ask what she was looking for, my mother would just smile and say, it has to talk to me. Any honest real estate agent will tell you that most home buyers' decisions are no more rational than my mother's with her tree. There was a time in my life, years after I first encountered that ramshackle house in Port Townsend, when I was an agent myself, walking buyers through the process and dutifully helping them draw up their lists of requirements. I would listen to a couple emphatically assert that they needed four bedrooms, two baths, and a no-maintenance yard. 
and then watched as they fell in love with a tiny garden becalmed cottage that they spotted on way to the house that met every one of their specifications. It happened over and over and over again. While we might like to believe that our house needs are pragmatic line items, our true needs, the ones that drive our decisions, come far more often from some deep and unacknowledged wellspring of memories and desires. Because here's the thing. We aren't looking for a house. We're looking for a home. A house can supply you with a place to sleep, to cook, to store your car. A home fits your soul. In ancient Rome, the term domus, from which we get the word domicile, meant both people and place, an unspoken relationship that we feel like a heartbeat. A home fills needs you didn't know you had, so it is no wonder that when pressed for an explanation for our choices, we give reasons that make no sense, pointing to a bunch of dried lavender hanging in the kitchen, a porch swing, the blue of a front door, almost always things that could be recreated in a house that fit the list. But sense is not the point. These small details are simply visual indicators of an architectural personality that fits our own, that reminds us of a childhood home or a house filled with color and the laughter of children that we visited on a vacation in Mexico. And yet a choice of a home is not just about where we've been or what we remember. It's also about who we want to be. As Winston Churchill famously said, we shape our buildings and afterwards they shape us. When we choose a house, we are making a decision about how we will live. I don't mean in the obvious way of how long your commute to work will be or whether there are schools or stores or friends nearby, although all of those things are important and will impact your life. What I am talking about is something far more subliminal. The designs of our homes quite literally change us. An eating nook for two invites a busy couple to slow down every morning for coffee. A courtyard in an apartment building helps create community. A south-facing window encourages optimism, while alcoves foster book lovers. Perhaps one of the strongest blows for feminism came from the first, first sledgehammer that opened a kitchen to a family room and changed the view of the cook from both sides of the wall. It is the rare buyer who sees these things for what they are. We are understandably distracted by the stress of what is, for many of us, the biggest financial decision of our lives. Our minds are busy but we feel those subtle calls. We see that bunch of lavender and as often as not, we leap. And I'll stop there for now. Oh man, I thought Sin Keeper was going to be my favorite book and now I've <laughs> changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally resounds with me. Uh, my favorite part was in your prologue where your kids were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had that same experience. Our girls were just in high school and they're like, uh, we're moving there. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it takes vision. And, and I've learned that vision is a precious commodity. It is. And for me, it took my husband's vision. And then just like with everything else, if you, uh, back in my podcast, I've talked before. So the start of all my writing was where I would talk about writing. I have a great husband, so I'd like to talk about him. But um, I wanted to go back and get my doctorate. And because the kids had moved out, he's like, why don't you write? You're just a beautiful writer and you've always wanted to write and become a uh, published author. Why don't you do that and not do your doctorate? And mm -hmm. I'm like, 
yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so I started on the journey of saying I'm an author and then asking people and then the podcast kind of started and it's just been a beautiful journey. So, but Erica, thank you so, so very much for spending the time with us. I know your world has opened up and you're probably so very busy, but I do appreciate you taking the time to stop and talk with us and share with us about your books, but also about your journey. Cause I, I feel like it's so important that those of us that are starting or we're halfway or in the middle or we're not published, we have to know that it's a long process and it just doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of, you know, I think the thing, if I could say anything, it would be that, you know, don't worry so much about the part about being published. That's great. That's the icing on the cake. But if you worry too much about that, you're going to miss all the lessons that come along the way while you're learning your craft. And those in the end are the most valuable thing of all. Oh, well, you're speaking to me, sister. You're telling me what I needed to hear today. So thank you. I usually ask what advice you have at the end of the podcast, but you just gave it to us. So (laughs) (laughs) we're just on the same wavelength. We are. We really are. So thank you so much. So listeners, here's your action before we go. Get on um, show notes and go find Erica and um, let her know you heard her on the podcast and get one of her books. I, I will recommend Scent Keeper. I think it's a beautifully written book, but I also think this other one's going to be pretty fantastic too. So get both of them. And if you run into Erica, Erica, do you have any speaking engagements coming up um, that maybe listeners can come and find you at? Well, I do have a bunch. They may have already happened by the mm-hmm. time that this is published. And also uh, as we speak, coronavirus is causing all kinds yes. of trouble. Havoc. So mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Um, my events are actually happening later in May. So the best thing I can say is just my website is www.ericabauermeister.com. I have an events page. That's where I will update things. So I would just check there for the most up-to-date information. Fantastic. And and so for those that are listening, hopefully by the time this comes out, the coronavirus has subsided but my hearts are with all of you as you're struggling through the process and maybe some financial issues going on so just know that you know I'm thinking about you and and there are people there that care about what's going on so so Erica thank you so much for being here I truly do appreciate the time and um, I look forward to hearing so much more about you in the future well thank you so much this has been a real pleasure thank you for listening to the podcast we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.